This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and this is the first Bank Nerd Corner of 2024. So as always, we welcome back the marvelous, the wise, the fast-speaking Kia Hazlitt, banking and fintech editor at Bank Director. Kia, Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you too, Alex. Thank you. I appreciate that. How's 2024 been treating you so far? Is it weird to say? Is it weird to write? I was going to say, is it weird to write on a check? But you probably haven't written a check in 2024 yet. No, but as a journalist, it's really, you have to remember when the year changes and be really specific because now if I'm talking about anything that happened more than two weeks ago or three weeks ago, you have to say it's in 2023 (laughs) and then going forward to think about, oh, I'm in 24 now, the next year is 2025. But personally in Nashville, we're reporting live from Nashville, um, (laughs) the Music City has gotten more annual snowfall or like the average snowfall in 24 hours and it gets all year and so i am snowed in and as a nebraskan (laughs) it's very funny to look at how just other states just lay down and do nothing when a bunch of snow falls from the sky what about you yes well right so okay you're a hearty midwesterner right and so like you probably had the same experience i had growing up in montana which is like you get your ass to school and it does not matter what's going on, right? Like I think there was one day in my 18 years of public education where we didn't go to school, we got a day off and it was because it was so cold. And this is the old days when, you know, vehicles were less reliable maybe than they are today, but it was so cold, the buses wouldn't start. And so it was more a logistical challenge of how do we get the (laughs) kids to school? It wasn't like it's too cold, or there's too much snow. And the problem, of course, is in Montana or Nebraska or places like that, real places, let's be honest, they don't build any extra days into the calendar. And so I was like, oh, snow day, this is amazing. And then I had to make it up in June, right? Because there were no like slack days built into the calendar. And so it doesn't get you anything. So anyway, it's been very cold here over this weekend. And late last week, we got down to negative 37. That was the low. Oh my gosh. um, Which is very cold. And I think the Friday before the weekend where we did have school, so my eldest son is in kindergarten, when I dropped him off, I think it was negative 25 outside. Oh my God, wow. The concession that they made was they didn't make the kids wait outside and they let them into the school early. And, you know, I don't remember them doing that when I was a kid. So even that we're getting a little bit soft on. But uh, yeah, that's been the winter storm experience up here. I'm realizing that although I feel comfortable with a lot of the snow that yeah. when I live in a place that doesn't invest in just plowing the streets like or doesn't pre-salt them. And totally. also, I will say that I grew up in a really flat area and Nashville has a surprising amount of hills. It does make me feel like, oh, I don't want to be on the road right now or I have no yes. reason to be on the road. Yes. And so infrastructure really plays into my ability to interact with the environment comfortably in a way that Yes. I didn't appreciate growing up. I When I was driving home yesterday, I was literally like, so is the plan to not plow the streets? What what part of the <laughs> snow response plan does not plowing the streets fall under? 
It's so the first plan. It's the only plan. Yeah. <laughs> the plan that A, is hilarious. B, and C. It's so. just, we're not going to plow. Well, what are snow plows might be the question. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And actually, we won't go down this rabbit hole anymore because that's a perfect segue to the first of our many news stories. So we, as always, are going to start by bouncing around a couple of things that have happened over the last month, month and a half. I feel like a lot of banking stuff has happened uh, since we last recorded And uh, then, as always, we'll dig into some questions that we're sort of curious about, but probably can't give good answers to. And we'll give Kia an opportunity to rant at the very end. So, Kia, speaking of infrastructure and the surprising role that it plays in how things work, can you give us an update on the bank rescue program, which was something that we talked about last year, I believe? We have talked about this. Its formal name is the Bank Term Funding Program, but I like to think of it as a not discount window, discount window. And that's because it is the Federal Reserve's emergency liquidity facility. It was set up after the liquidity crisis that was kind of kicked off with SVB because very specifically, the concern was if uninsured depositors started pulling their money out of banks everywhere, there wouldn't be enough lending capacity from the FHLB, which is many banks' preferred secondary liquidity provider. And to incentivize banks to use this not discount discount window, they <laughs> the Fed allows you to, to doesn't make you take the discount on your securities that have lost value. So the funding is done collateral at par value instead of the discount value. So it's actually like a pretty, like it's, it should be more financially attractive from the collateral perspective. And the reason why it's coming up now is one, it's it's within three months of its targeted end date. This was a one-year liquidity program, but also the market has priced in that long-term interest rates are going to be lower than they currently are, which is presenting Mm. like a nice arbitrage opportunity for banks to make a little money with a pretty risk-free borrow from the Fed at, I think it's 4.7 today, 4.7 today. Mm And then Mm -hmm. put it into your reserve account also at the Fed at 5.4. And these are kind of decisions or like the 4.7, that's a market-based rate. That's why this arbitrage exists because, you know, the Fed is successfully indicating and people believe that long-term rates will be lower a year from today. And so banks are kind of taking advantage of that that discrepancy and borrowing from this discount on discount discount window before it winds down. And you know, that's probably not what it was intended for. Um, <laughs> and But I, I think it's fine that banks are doing this. I think it's fine to make a little like risk-free money. It's, banks are not making a lot of money right now. And also, I yep. think it's good that banks use this facility, especially because, you know, many of the things that led to SCB needing to restructure their balance sheet actually still exists. Whether or not we yep. have that, ur- that liquidity urgency still, I think banks still need a lot of different funding sources. And I think it's good, you know, to incentivize them to borrow from the Fed rather than from the FHLB as emergency backup liquidity. What about you? I mean, do you like this trade? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a good, I mean, risk-free, always take risk-free money, right? I mean, I agree. The Wall Street Journal headline was the Fed launched a bank rescue program last year. Now banks are gaming it. And, you know, it's it's a good headline, but I agree. I mean, I don't think there's anything super unusual or all that bad necessarily. And I I like that you mentioned the non-discount window, discount window way of framing it, because 
as we talked about, I think last year when SVB and everything was going down and we were talking about what are the sort of emergency liquidity sources that banks can turn to when they need it, there is this very strange reluctance to lean on the Fed discount window, right? And part of it is, as you were saying, the collateral. Part of it is just, it's like a bad reputational thing, right? It's seen as like, literally the lender of last resort. And oh, if you're using the lender of last resort, then you must really be in trouble. And so like, it has this weird stigma, which you, you've talked about a lot on the podcast, that probably shouldn't exist because, you know, these things are designed to be used when you need them. That's the whole point. Yeah. But it still does exist. And so I kind of wonder, like more psychologically, almost from a bank and investor perspective, if this might be a helpful bridge to kind of like helping everyone in the industry remember like these things from the Fed are designed to be used and it's not like yeah, a sign yeah. of imminent doom if someone taps into these when the environment is, you know, appropriate, right? I mean, I kind of think of it to your point, I mean, like what the sort of consumer equivalent is. It's kind of odd because all of this stuff is coming from the Fed, right? And so it'd be right. like, you know, if my bank is, you know, paying me, you know, 5% on my savings account, but then they're also just giving out money at a lower interest rate that I can borrow from. Like, that would be a weird thing for my bank to do, but no one would blame me for taking advantage of that trade. And I think that, yeah, just like the use of these facilities generally feels like something that we need to normalize and kind of get back to a better balance on. Because, you know, the other thing I did not know before SVB melted to the ground last year was that the federal home loan banks play like a shockingly important role in backstopping a lot of the liquidity in the banking space. And like, as you and I have talked about before, it's not exactly what they were designed to do. And they don't work not perfectly really for everyone name. under any circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah, it's, it's a miss. It, the, the degree to which they were using those almost exclusively was a misuse of what it was set up for. So I'm all for yeah. like, let's kind of diversify the options here a bit. And I hope that, you know, concurrent to the bank term funding program, um, non-discount discount window, the Fed actually has spoken, governors have spoken about banks using the discount window and saying, we believe that this is an important part of secondary liquidity. And, you know, yeah. SVB famously wasn't connected to the discount window when they <laughs> right. had their deposit run. And so I'm hoping that, you know, if you're a bank that's taking part of this trade, that actually does help you test your capacity to borrow from the discount window. It makes you put collateral at the Fed and use it as a, as a facility. So I do think like, again, I kind of don't think the BFTP should go away. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it should go away for as long as the rates are really high. And as long as we're dealing with this AOCI um, yeah. liquidity situation, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, making a, for banks, making a little bit of money off of the difference of these rates. But I do think that if it goes, if the BFTP goes away, do banks go, you know, move all of that borrowing back to the FHLB? Or have we successfully gotten rid of or lessened the stigma of borrowing from the discount window? And now you'll just move to the discount window. And we know that like during the financial crisis, there were times that FHLBs had higher rates than discount borrowing rates and banks still used them instead of using the discount window. So this is a pretty strong stigma. Price can't just erase it. So I'm hoping that, you know, this is, <laughs> I think the BFCP really helps stabilize the industry, really backs up, yeah. also remove pressure from the funding constraints of the FHLB. And then, you know, I think 
I just don't think we're in a, such a radically different operating environment from March, you know, 8th, 2023. Yeah. No, I agree with that entirely. And it's, it is weird how these things will like go from being a crisis. We have to have this. We have yeah. to set this up. It'll be ready next week, blah, blah, blah. And then like, just with like, not even a full year removed, we're like, we don't need this. And the conversation totally Over. shifts to like, well, and like, not only is it over, but like banks are gaming this, right? And I don't, I, I'm <laughs> oh, sort of yeah. mad. I, the, the more I'm thinking about this, the more I like am getting mad at whoever wrote that title for the Wall Street Journal article. Because like, the problem with that framing is it sort of positions this funding mechanism the same way that like the FDIC's charter for its insurance fund is written, right? Which is like, we don't lose money. Right. And like there yeah. is something sort of vaguely annoying about regulation for banks that prioritizes taxpayers not losing money over safety and soundness. Right. Or maybe possibly yeah. at the expense of safety and soundness. And I feel like when we say, oh, well, they're gaming this, it's like, well, they're like taking they're sticking their hands into the pockets of taxpayers, taking money out and just like laughing all to the way the bank. And like, that's not really true. Right. And that's to not, the extent yeah, that it is. True. Yeah. And to the extent that it's like kind of true, it's a trade that I as a taxpayer am more than happy to make if it reduces the odds of these like liquidity crises in the futures. Like those things are way more expensive and disruptive to me as a taxpayer than whatever incremental pennies I'm chipping in to make sure that banks have like adequate liquidity right now. So that whole framing kind of annoys me. Well, and the other thing too, and I'm sure we'll talk about this next month, you know, bookmark this, but, you know, earnings are going on right now. This is still a really challenging environment from an interest perspective. 2023 yeah. might have been the peak of net interest income and margins might still be compressed if banks can't make higher loans, higher interest loans to you know offset the lower interest. So it's entirely possible that in 2024, we have earnings conditions that kind of lead to like zombie banks that are paying more for their deposits than they're making on loans. They're upside down. And, yeah. you know, if banks can make like a little bit of money to kind of offset some of those pressures, that kind of just buys them some time for the trade to be the interest rate trade to be fully unwound. And so we can get yeah. into 100 basis points lower, 200 basis points lower. And, you know, the deposits are equal, cost of the deposits equals the money they're making on loans. But I, yeah, to me, this doesn't, gaming is pretty loaded and people are yeah. reporting very breathlessly about this. There's only $147 billion that have been drawn or were borrowed by like, January 11th. I think it's fine. Yeah. I mean, the takeaway is calm down, Wall Street Journal. Okay. Um, <laughs> or no, sorry, right. it was November, November 1. My bad. My bad. No, okay, you didn't sorry, Yeah, fair, fair. No, totally fair. Um, all right. So, are you ready for our next topic? Oh, yeah. I fell down a rabbit hole on this one. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I mean, like, if, if we fell down on a rabbit hole on that one, get ready, listeners, because it's going to be even <laughs> more on this next story. We'll, we'll try to contain ourselves. But, Kia, I want to talk about ILCs. Are you ready to talk about ILCs? Yes. Industrial loan charters for industrial loan charters. That's not something you thought about in 15 years. Industrial loan charters. Which is like totally defensible, by the way, but we're going to talk about it because there was a report from Politico in December of last year, to your point, which stated that Senate banking chair Sherrod Brown is apparently in the process of reviving legislation to crack down on tech companies that want to get into banking. So essentially what this proposed bill would do 
would essentially ratchet up federal regulation of firms outside the banking industry that obtain these industrial loan company charters, which is a type of state-level license that allows these companies to expand into financial services. And what's interesting about this to me is that, well, first of all, as you might not be too surprised to hear, it's really been an effort that's been supported by a lot of folks in the banking space. So the Ohio Bankers League, the Bank Policy Institute, which represents a lot of large banks, the Independent Community Bankers of America, Americans for Financial Reform, blah, blah, blah. Everyone is sort of piling onto this effort. It also has a strange amount of sort of bipartisan support, which I was a little bit surprised by. I think anytime there's bipartisan support in Congress these days, I'm surprised. But Kia, I guess the thing that I find sort of strange here, and maybe you can give us a little bit of the history, because I know when we were putting this outline together, you fell down the rabbit hole a little bit. But, you know, ILCs are this weird thing that, yeah, seriously, um, they've been around for a while and they... I don't know. They seem to come up every, I mean, over the 20-ish years that I've been working in this industry, they probably come up every like seven to 10 years as sort of a hot button issue. And then they go away and then they come back. And I don't think the actual number of these chartered institutions is very high. So like, can you explain to us like, what is the scope of an ILC today? And like, where are some of these hot button issues over time? Yeah. And I probably know a little less, but maybe a focus a little more on this because I've only been around for like about a decade. And you're right. Like I kind of only learn about things as they pop up. And so I learned about ILCs with, you know, Walmart attempting to get an ILC and it's come up. Really the interest in these is kind of tied when people, when companies submit an application for them. But what I have learned down my rabbit hole is that ILCs have been, and industrial banks have been around since the turn of the 20th century. So at the start of the 1900s, these are specific banks that were set up to give loans and provide banking services to industrial workers. They are state chartered institutions. And right now, the only states that offer them, offer these charters are California, Hawaii, Indiana, Minnesota, Nevada, and Utah. They are not banks, but they are basically banks that are owned by a company that's not a bank. And the company that is not a bank is not subject to the Bank Holding Company Act, which is where the Federal Reserve oversees the company that owns a bank. And I don't know if that's like a little confusing in banking. Most, If a bank has a holding company, most of those holding companies are called bank holding companies. But right. ILCs are banks that are owned by a non-bank holding company or just a, you know, a holding company. And they are not subject to the Bank Holding Company Act. They're not subject to the Federal Reserve. So this law would change that. You and I were trying to figure out basically, you know, what the meaningful differences are for ILCs. And they can't accept demand deposits. And they have to have assets of under, like, I believe, 100 billion or, right? 100 million? Sorry, is that Yeah, 100, is that 100 million. Okay, 100 for, million. It's 100 million for the deposit million. account, right? So if they're, okay. if they're over 100 million then they can't offer demand deposit accounts, but they can offer now accounts. And can you explain what the difference is between a demand deposit account? I can tell you that the now accounts are different. They are different products than demand accounts. But I can tell you that those they've not had meaningful differences since like for the last 10 years, since Reg Q has been changed. You do not have to give seven days notice that you want to draw money out. So that to me is distinction without difference. It doesn't matter. So now accounts. So so oh, now <laughs> accounts used to be right. So to that point, like just to be clear, now accounts used to be a specific type of deposit account 
that was the only like deposit account that in ILC bank could offer. I think it's still the case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And an something, ILC, something. especially one yeah. that's over a hundred million, right? And yeah. those now accounts used to, prior to I think Dodd Frank, they used to have restrictions around functionally like how quickly you could take money out of your account, right? And so if the account offered interest it was treated more in some ways like we used to treat savings accounts where there was like a delay when you could take the money out. However, yeah. since the repeal <laughs> of Reg Q, which happened as part of the Dodd-Frank Act, that essentially erased that requirement. And so now anyone who has an ILC, they can offer now accounts that work exactly the same as the demand same. deposit accounts. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, my understanding is anyone who has an ILC that offers now accounts, that's pretty much how they work now, right? Yeah. And so the lay of the land is that as of March 31st, 2020, there's only 23 ILCs. They have 165 billion total. in assets. 23 okay. total. They have 165 billion in assets and 135 billion in deposits, which was at the time less than 1% of all FDIC combined total assets. Mm-hmm. Some of the ILCs, according to the Congressional Research Service, are owned and overseen by companies like UBS and Sally May. And then non-financial ones are Toyota and BMW. Some are niche lenders. And so this law would impact them. And I suppose all of the eight companies that have applied for ILC applications, depending on where those charters are. So Ford Motor Credit had applied for an ILC. Rakuten, the eBay mm-hmm. company, applied for an ILC. Drive It applied for an ILC and General Motors had applied for an ILC. So this is the state that we're arguing about is about 30 (laughs) companies, whether or not their holding company should be seen by the Federal Reserve. And I think this is such a stupid fight. And this is kind of a waste of Congress, like fixing a problem, like addressing a problem that's not a big deal. And, you know, I think that the history of ILCs is kind of the history of like, you know, who gets to have a bank account or a bank charter and who do we want to have a bank charter? Because you know, in the past, we wanted these companies to provide these ILCs. There used to be, you know, 50 ILCs and now there's 20, but we right. didn't want Walmart to have an ILC. And so we just, so when I say we, I mean society or. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that, application was like slow roll. I don't think it was, I don't think it was actually ever rejected. I think Walmart withdrew it. And so yeah, Walmart was basically told in no uncertain terms, like no way in hell are you getting this, but we're not going to like decline yeah, it officially. Right. We're not going to decline it. We'll just like, we'll just always return it. And so, you know, we've only had two ILCs granted since mm-hmm. like 2010. And those are Square and Nelnet. And, right. you know, Square, obviously small business accounts and Nelnet student lending. So, Alex, what are your thoughts on this ILC regulation, ILCs in general, the stupid now demand deposit account issue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. so first, the now account demand deposit account is totally just a distinction without a difference. I think you're absolutely right. There's functionally like no difference between an ILC and a regular bank charter, except for the big distinction, which is the one that banks get grumpy about, which is. If you have an ILC, you're not subject to the Bank Holding Company Act. And just to be like really clear about that, I mean, the problem for a Walmart or an Apple or whoever is they can't be subject to the Bank Holding Company Act. 
Like it's just not compatible with their business, right? And so if you basically said the only people who can have bank charters are ones that are subject to the Bank Holding Company Act, you're essentially saying, and you know, banks don't, you know, say this out loud, but this is sort of the implication of what would happen. You're saying that no large non-bank corporation can ever be a bank, right? And yeah. I think that it kind of going back to your point about like as a society, what do we want and what's like the outcome that we want to get to? The thing that bugs me about all of this is I don't see any evidence and maybe the folks working at the Bank Policy Institute can send me a letter and correct me if I'm getting this wrong. But like, (laughs) I don't (laughs) I don't really see any evidence that ILCs have ever like wrecked any part of the banking industry. Like, I don't know of any instances where they've posed a safety and soundness risk. You know, I think that some of the very largest non-bank financial services company like a GE or something did end up becoming systemically important in ways that probably are important to address in the future. But like, I don't know, to me, like, as, as you point out, there's not a ton of these companies. They don't, for the most part, do anything too crazy. You know, like Toyota participates in the captive auto finance market as a captive finance provider, and they provide loans to help people buy Toyotas. Like that's in Toyota's interest. As a Toyota owner, it's in my interest. I, mm-hmm. I benefit from it. I think the same thing is true with Square, right? I mean, it's a pretty narrow uh, focused bank that serves small business owners. And I think that, you know, in the case of Square, like the question is with adequate supervision, and they are supervised and regulated as banks. They're not the uh, regulated state, under yeah, the bank the, holding company level. At the level. bank unit level, the state yeah. and the FDIC supervise them. And if they're the insured deposits are insured. Right, right. So it's so they are it's not like they're completely unregulated. So they are regulated. And I feel like the the benefits they provide to their customers are valuable to society. And I kind of feel like the the objection here is more, you know, the special privileges that you get a bank in terms of like your business model and your ability to benefit from net interest margin and other things that, you know, only banks can do the ability to access different payment rails directly, like all of the benefits of being a bank from a business model perspective, when banks object to ILC charters being given out, it feels not so much like a safety and soundness argument, but more just an argument around, we're the only ones who should get these special things. Yeah. And that, that to me, like, fencing. yeah, like I, I totally get why they think that, but I don't know why I'm supposed to care as a consumer, you know? <laughs> right. This isn't my fight. So it's really not. Here, I actually, I had to also, I had the I had the impression that ILCs did not cause the financial crisis. So I just needed to fact check that. And so what I found was that Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and General Motors all converted their ILCs to become commercial banks. And then those companies also then became BHCs. And then other ILCs voluntarily closed, including the GE and Target ILCs. And then two small ILCs failed. So it, you know, I don't know if that means like, you know, it didn't sound like they fared better or worse. And also they had options that were available to them. I also think that this current regulatory oversight, quote unquote, exists because ILCs predate the Bank Holding Company Act. And so they were kind of grandfathered in. And yeah, so it's not like super logical. And so I guess it could change or I guess it doesn't have to change. But at the time when it like when the rule is going into effect, that's not something that was seen as maybe super important or a big priority. That the BHCA was supposed to address. 
But also, I think this kind of brings up in a similar to how you and I were trying to figure out a now versus DDAs. Like, why do we have such so many charters? And why? <laughs> and I think this kind of contributes to regulatory complexity or these instances of regulatory arbitrage where it does kind of feel like, I guess if I was a bank, it kind of does feel like someone's getting away with something and that mm-hmm. there isn't maybe a good reason other than history for why, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the ILC charter should exist. But to change that would be to kind of step on maybe the state regulator's toes or to take away the autonomy that a, a bank has in electing to become, a, you know, like a Fed member bank or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just so interesting to me that like there are these turf wars that come out that relate back to the fact that like we have more than one type of bank charter in the United States. Mm-hmm. We have like 50, right? 51 regulators you can get them from depending mm-hmm. on where you're based. And, and then we have another set of regulation if you want to have a holding company. And so, you know, I think we're always kind of like, we're never like designing the system the way we want it. We're kind of, you know, making tweaks to the system the way we have, like the way we built it without actually being like, you know, is this a modern regulatory system? Or do we have, do we need more than one type of bank charter? Who should be allowed to get bank charters? Who should be allowed to own banks, right? We're always kind of being like, well, like a hundred years ago, we let, you know, the widget company own a bank. And so we got to keep letting widget companies in some capacity own banks today because we did it a hundred years ago and we can't change that, you know? So I I think ultimately, yeah, you should pick a lot of fights, collapse all the charters, (laughs) simplify it, stop with the regulatory or or don't, right? Like, or be like, you know, as many charters as humanly possible, but then like actually award ILCs then. Like if you have the ILC charter, award ILC charters, right? Or are you just hoping that they all go away through attrition? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it, it changes, right, depending on like the time and who's in charge and everything, because I mean, ILCs were impossible to get and then they became possible for a short window and Square got one. Yeah, there was one, a and, literal like, moratorium for a bit yeah. and then they became possible because one person who got to award ILCs got to be in charge and then that person left. So now we don't have any ILCs. Right, New right. So not not a great system to your point. And obviously, like, you know, if we were to design our regulatory system from first principles, it would look a lot different than what we have. But I think, you know, the other point that you made that's kind of interesting about the bank holding companies is just like to me, a very simple sort of standard from a bank holding company perspective should be like, should you be required to be regulated as a bank holding company? Well, are you a large corporation that makes a majority of its revenue from banking? then yes, probably. And by the way, towards the end, like General Electric probably should have been regulated as a bank holding company because it was like, you know, an electrical company only sort of by name, but it was actually more of a financial services conglomerate. Honestly, okay, but here's the thing. I don't want to litigate GE, but it should have been regulated as an insurer. And I think insurers have even crazier, right? I think it's all (laughs) state-based. So No, I think think that's right. Yeah, it was like, is making a lot of money through insurance. And so, and which, right. you know, is still different than banking. Right, yeah, right. No, no, no I agree. Arguably, it was so, becoming, a, yeah. Yeah, so like there's probably a principle there that makes sense. But then I think kind of to your other point about just how many charters we have, and then we can wrap up on the story. Did you know, Kia Hazlitt, that Fiserv, everyone's favorite banking core provider, 
recently applied for a merchant acquirer limited purpose bank charter in the state of Georgia. Did you know that? Did you know this charter existed before you read this story? No, I did not. Did I you? didn't know it existed. Why am I learning about new charters from news stories? I, it's a great question. It's a great question. Apparently, according to the article I read in American Banker, this would allow Fiserv to control the entire payment process, including authorization, settling, and clearing of debit and credit card transactions, which normally they have to use bank partners to help facilitate, right? So this is that whole yeah. sort of how close to the metal can you get without being a bank thing. This would allow mm-hmm. Fiserv to get closer to the metal and to be able to do more of this stuff. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know a lot about what a merchant acquire limited purpose bank charter is exactly. Although I would hazard a guess that Ajin maybe has one of these two. Someone can fact check me on that. But I believe Ajin does have a bank charter in the US and it might be one of these special purpose charters. But like, broadly speaking, maybe the answer here is to your earlier point, more special purpose charters that limit the scope of what the charter holder can do. So yeah. you know, from a safety and soundness perspective, like we're not going to let you do the GE thing where you expand into every financial service yeah. vertical simultaneously in every country around the world. But at the same time, it does allow you to specialize in certain areas, lending, payment processing, whatever, and become more profitable based on the value the- that you provide to customers, which again banks are going to object to because they don't want people taking profits out of the banking industry that they're not getting. But again, I don't care about that personally, right? So maybe there's yeah. like a middle road there. I also read either in Banking Dive or American Banker that Pfizer is interested in this because I believe they are seeing that banks just don't want to do this very particular type of business. It's hard for banks to make money, I guess, from it. Right. It's really important right. for Pfizer. And I was like, as I you were talking, I was like, I was like, why doesn't Pfizer get an ILC in addition to no charters being approved? They probably don't want to own the de- or like have take deposits. But it is right. interesting because you know, one, who's keeping the list of all the states that offer this? And you know, would does this? You know, I always wonder with these like state regulators, like does you know Georgia can Georgia go see you know over have the resources to go oversee a company like Pfizer? And what mm-hmm. would that kind of look like to have the regulation? Although Pfizer may also be supervised as like a service provider. So I think they are. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah, think they are. That. yeah. But yeah, just and it is interesting, too, because, you know, if banks, what if banks protest this charter application, but then don't want to provide the service, right? <laughs> like then we're kind of at this, you know, it's just. Well, yeah, no, no. And and I. All the charters I, are well, no to charters. That point, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and it's hard, right? Because like, and this kind of gets into the other thing that we see a lot in fintech as well, which is like. Are you competing with banks? Are you partnering with banks? Are you a vendor that yeah. sells services to banks? Are you all three right. simultaneously? And like Fiserv is a good example of one where is this kind of competitive to banks? Yeah, but they also don't really like to do this business and it only works at a massive scale, which Fiserv has achieved. Yeah. And right. they also do sell services to banks. That's their main business, which would mean that like even if they could get approved for an ILC Maybe banks would flip out about them getting an ILC, but wouldn't about this special one in Georgia. Like, I don't know, but I do think there is a delicate dance to picking out like, which charter can we pick that's going to enable us to do what we want to do, likely get approved and not piss too many people off? Because it does feel like, Mm -hmm. to put a capper on this, the thing you don't want is the Walmart thing, which is you try to sort of just slip in a charter. You and just unite like, hey, like, entire just industry, all the big banks, the little banks. They just <laughs> freak out and they all call yeah. their they all call their congressmen and senators and then it becomes a big issue. So 
I do think there is an art to slipping in there and trying to get the charter that you need. Kia, let's wrap up with a couple of just real quick stories before we get into some of the questions that we have. You go first. Yeah. So let me tell you, we've kind of alluded to this, but I read a report that made my head explode. And if you are a frequent (laughs) listener of this show, you can probably guess the news item. It is that U.S. the U.S. Transportation Department is scrutinizing the frequent flyer programs of U.S. airlines. U.S. airlines are not banks. And so I was very confused about some of the kind of regulation or violations that they might find because it's kind of like bank. It's all weirdly bank adjacent in a way that I think is bad. And I think that, you know, there are some really important distinctions when you kind of apply the principles of, you know, bank regulation to things that aren't banks. And so the DOT is look, is going to look at just... Yeah, like the yeah. U.S. Transportation yes. Department is not exactly a traditional financial services regular. Like, Keep going. Okay, but so, I mean, even you, you know, the DOT is looking at potential deceptive or unfair practices. And <laughs> UDAP, they're in, looking at UDAP. They're using <laughs> UDAP on the frequent flyer programs. And I want them to make it so that I don't stay on the runway for three hours. And also when Southwest loses luggage for a week. <laughs> right that like I'm compensated. That's like, those are the problems I want the DOT to solve. Well, yeah. like the window blowing out of the new Boeing plant, like yeah, that'd I be a good one. I'd, I'd like, <laughs> fix that, fix that. Don't like, what are you doing with UDEP? This is so weird. Yeah. So like, so they're scrutinizing yes. it right now. So they're looking at things like the transparency practices for booking award tickets, the transferability of miles and then notice given <laughs> before making changes. I bet everyone can guess what led for led to this investigation, it is probably the Delta, like, controversial devaluation and the outcry, which Delta, like, undid to a certain extent. And so we are talking about something that, like, didn't happen to a certain extent. And that so apparently, like, you know, the DOT is concerned that airlines are changing point systems in a way that's unfair to consumers, including the devaluation. And I think that's so interesting because, again, these are kind of financial, these are, like, financial parallels and famously airlines are now you know companies that sell frequent flyer miles to banks and then happen to fly planes on the side that is where they make most of their money so i guess you could say this is kind of a material practice from their perspective but i also do just think that like this is a total caveat emptor situation like buyer gotta beware like they prices can change prices are dynamic they can change at any time the airlines are supposed to make money from all of their programs. They're yeah. not really supposed to lose money on their point system. And so with the proliferation of websites that have told people how to maximize their redemptions and airlines, you know, maybe their computer systems aren't smart enough to keep up with how the redemptions work and how, you know, if you're willing to figure out the partner transfers, whatever, if you're willing to do all that, like, yeah, the airline might lose some money and need to like kind of correct it every you know couple of years and i just can't believe the regu- like all us regulator is getting involved in this oddly parallel financial topic when we have just talked about you know the like the problems that you should be solving and the problems that you are solving so that's no, my I, update I, yeah stay tuned i'm gonna be really upset if they mess with these uh, programs that's amazing well okay so just one quick theory for you yes. on this you know how they talk about there being like four pillars that the world rests on and that everything sort of can be reduced to these four pillars. Well, 
it's what the, the one that people talk about lately is like interest rates, right? So like okay. interest rates are what like the entire world and economy and everything, everything you look around and sure. see in the world is a result of like interest rate policy. And there's like, you know, two or three other like things that are sort of foundationally important to how everything in the world works. Is it possible that one of those things is airline reward systems Reporting. and point systems? <laughs> Because like, because it's weird, right? Because like, here we are all living our lives and everything's going fine. And then Delta makes what to me a not very frequent flyer seems like a yeah somewhat innocuous change. I could see people being annoyed about. People flip out. They like flip yeah. out in a way that also, is really odd. You know what I mean? Also, Delta didn't even really change. Okay, they didn't really change. Sorry to get so specific about this. They didn't really change the redemption values. They changed how much you'd have to spend or fly to become like right. the level of frequent fire. Like again, right. like the thing is just not the thing. And like, I just, this is just not a problem that I think, you know, I don't think anyone can say it's unfair. I don't think anyone can say it's like unclear. I just, to me, it's more like, it just, I think what people don't like experiencing is inflation. And outside of, you know, 21 and 22, most people would experience inflation when their points got worth less because the awards cost more. Like that was just probably my experience with inflation before this. But it just kind of sucks. Yeah. You know, it just kind of is. Like if you don't like it, don't play the game. You know, don't collect the points. Don't have the credit card. No one is forcing you to have this credit card. No one's forcing you to fly on any specific airline and accumulate its points and then try to re- redeem it. So that's why I just, I just don't understand you know, this application. And it is, you know, we talk sometimes about how regulators are like getting into everything. And this is like just one of those where I'm like, this is not a problem. Like the problem got solved, right? Like, you know, consumers rebelled. Every other airline took advantage of Delta. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and and I think the, I mean, my core theory on why this is coming up, because you saw like Dick Durbin mentioned this. You remember that a little while ago where he was like complaining about points and stuff. I do really honestly think that why this is happening and probably will keep happening is, some congressperson or senator, and maybe it was Dick Durbin, maybe it was someone else, maybe it's a set of them, they got personally pissed about it, right? Because you have to think, like, (laughs) people in Congress fly a lot. They probably are, like, very, like, sort of power users of these different reward programs, and so is their staff. It has to be, like, someone in Congress is just pissed about this, and they're ignoring all of their other responsibilities to just heap pressure behind the scenes on, like, any regulatory agency they yeah. can find to be like, make this your number one priority. But it's like, to your point, what the hell is the Department of Transportation doing looking at UDAP for rewards points? That's like the craziest headline ever. Yeah. And it's so, again, it's so close to banking that like maybe banks feel a little comforted that it's not just them. Other, <laughs> it's happening in other industries. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I would think it's like that meme with the I don't even know what show it is, but the guy with the noose around his neck and he's looking at the guy next to him is like, your first time, huh? Like, banks are probably just being like, ah, your first time dealing with UDAP. Yeah. That's, a, that's a tough one. Um, all right, Kia, can I, speaking of Dick Durbin, can I give you one super quick news story or update yeah. that I want to rant about for a sec? We've, the transitions today are like banging. They are seamless. I know. Go on. I know. We're on fire. I, I did get like a almost full night's sleep last night. So I, I've got more mental capacity than I normally do on this podcast. Okay. So mine is the ongoing debate around Durban 2.0, which is Dick Durban's attempt to sort of replicate versions of what he's done on the debit card side of the house on the credit card side of the house. Right. That has Nothing has actually happened on this, but it also is a effort that continues on and 
you know, I guess it only takes one good crisis to slip these things through, as we found out with 2010 and Dodd-Frank. So as part of the ongoing sort of legislative process around this, the Congressional Research Service basically put out sort of an analysis of Durban 2.0 and the different sort of proposed changes and the impact that it might have. And this is a fairly standard sort of part of the process that proposed legislation goes through to sort of understand the impacts it will have so people can vote intelligently on it, I suppose. Well, basically, in their conclusions, when they were sort of writing about this proposal, they said, quote, the ultimate impact of routing restriction prohibitions, which is one of the parts of it, is not certain, and that if it is impactful, it's unclear who would benefit. And specifically, Kia, if you go down a couple more sentences, you will find a line that caused me to black out briefly, which was, in addition, it is not clear whether retailers would pass interchange savings on to consumers. How did it's that make you feel when you read that? Whether retailers... <laughs> oh, God, I... So, I mean, like, the one thing we know, the one thing we know, the one thing I feel like we should know based on our own experiences in the U.S., as well as many other experiences around the world, is we know for sure it is 100% abundantly clear that retailers will not pass on interchange savings to consumers. And seeing that published by the Congressional Research Service I just, I feel like I'm going crazy, Kia. Like, what are we doing here? I mean, like, if we want to transfer more money to large retailers, who, by the way, are the ones that are most able to operationalize these new routing requirements and things, that's not something that your small little local coffee shop down the street is going to do. It's something that Target and Walmart and Amazon are going to do. If we want to subsidize that and put more money in their pockets, that's fine. But let's just call it what it is. Like, I've never seen a public policy thing where we know the answer so, so clearly, and yet it keeps coming up and they're like, well, I don't know. Who knows? It's impossible to predict. Like, no, it's not. It's A, super logical to try to predict what's going to happen, and B, we have evidence of it happening before. What are we doing? I mean, I feel like you should just write and do like letter to the editor to the Congressional Research (laughs) Service and be like, hey, I saw an error in your report when you said here, it's not clear whether retailers, I think you meant (laughs) <laughs> it is like crystal clear that totally. retailers will not pass interchange. And that like, it's funny because like when you're a journalist, sometimes you gotta like hedge because you're just like, this is like mostly true or it could be true. Or, or likely not be true. this it won't is going to happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. It won't be true for everyone. Mm-hmm. But you kind of have to say stuff. And then this is, I right. feel like someone was just doing the hedge of just like, I can't say definitively that it's not true. And I like, I can't point to something. And so because Mm -hmm. I can't point to something directly, I have to say this terrible thing, which is that it's not clear whether. And it's like, (laughs) I mean, you could even say like the past experience hasn't, you know, even though it's available, it's within the realm of possibility. That is often not what is the option that people, the retailers select. Totally. Yeah. I think German, you know, what's so crazy is like in 2018, I really felt thanks could have should have like shot their shot on Durban and tried to get it undone sure. when the big tax cut went through because they got like the sissy threshold raised, right? They got it raised yeah, from yeah, fifty yeah. billion to two hundred fifty billion, which is how SVB managed to just duck under the radar of all behind regulation. So they get that raised and they couldn't get Durban undone. Like, I oh know. man, what a missed opportunity. I know. They'll never kind of get that Again, You'll never but... have that window open again. No, it's yeah. it's 100% true. Yeah. And I, I feel like, 
you know, as much as you're like, oh, you know, retailers will pass savings on to consumer, <sighs> you know, like, no, that's not going to happen. It's possible. Well, I mean, like, you know, we could also say, like, if we repealed Durban, it's possible that debit Thanks card rewards give. would come back. You yeah. know, like, that's possible. That's possible. Now, do I think that's likely? No. Or if it does, it's going to happen at a level that's a lot less than what we used to have. Like, companies don't voluntarily give money away when they don't have to. But yeah. like, if we're going to go into the realm of what's possible, all kinds of things are possible. Yeah, I, I, it's funny you mentioned the journalistic hedging thing, because that's where my brain immediately went to. I saw this and I was like, just, just say the thing, man. Just say the thing. <laughs> just say the thing. Like, we all know it's true. Like, there's no need to get cute about this. All right. So we want to wrap up, as we always do, with a couple of questions. The first one is a, wait, but why is this the way that this is? Question. So Kia, I think you have one of these for me today. Yeah. So Alex... Why is it that central yeah. banks have so many different and arguably conflicting jobs or roles and responsibilities? Oh, Kia, I'm so glad you asked me this question. So I know that you're a big fan of central banks. So, oh, I yeah. love central banks. You know how I do. So, you had sent me an article, a paper uh, a while ago that was entitled uh, Structural Conflicts in Central Banking Regulator or Operator of a Payment System, which was by Aaron Klein at the Brookings Institute. And it was just such a well-written title, honestly, because it, it hit at something that I've been, you know, really kind of bothered by for a while, which is, you know, in my non-fintech circles, when people ask me like questions about different things in financial services, one of the questions I sometimes get, particularly when interest rates were going up really quickly was like, what does the Fed do? And I, you know, I, I like had to like grab the person and sit them down and be like, all right, I need like a good 25 minutes here. You got to just like pay attention. Give me 25 solid minutes because they actually do a whole bunch of different things. They regulate bank holding companies, as we've been talking about. They manage sure monetary policy, which is what mm -hmm. you have been seeing happen and what everyone's been talking about. And they also operate a payment system. And if you'd like to learn more, listen to my podcast where we interviewed the head of the Federal Reserve payment system. So like they have all of these different roles. And I do think it is a really weird sort of collection of different jobs that sometimes maybe do sort of intersect with each other in ways that aren't great. And, you know, I mean, I, I always like to sort of imagine the alternate universe where like, you know, <laughs> Imagine if the Fed ran its payments infrastructure like the mob, where they're like, hey, nice private market payments network you have there, Clearinghouse. Be a shame if anything happened to it, right? Like, you know, I mean, it, we, we sort of rely in some ways more on like norms around the way that these different central banks operate and sort of our expectations around what they're going to do, right? That's like why the Fed is a payment operator, right? Because of the yeah. norms that was set up with like, you know, interstate banking and before like electronic payments was the Fed needed to kind of clear payments of banks in its regions, right? It's like totally exactly. norm based. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no. And so it's just like we have, it kind of goes back to what you were saying before about we have the system more because of history than like it makes sense. But yeah, like these various roles of the central bank, and you see this in other countries too, it is just very, very strange. And I think it does create these conflicts. And we've talked about this on the show before, too, right? Like you have these sort of new-ish state-level banks that convince, you know, like a crypto company in Wyoming gets a new special crypto bank charter, right? Which is totally bizarre. But then they go to the Federal Reserve and they're like, well, you know, I'm a bank. I'd like to get access to, you know, the Federal Reserve payment system. And the Federal Reserve is like, yeah. 
And it's like, right. are they, why, why are they restricting access to that? And yeah. how much does that have to do with the interests of the bank holding companies that they also happen to regulate over here? And I mean, I don't know if I buy into all of the conspiracy theories about, I mean, I certainly don't buy into the really wacky ones about the central bank, but even like the more mild, like conflict of interesty type ones, I don't know how much truth there is actually to that, but they open themselves up to all of these discussions by having all these same jobs under one roof. It's weird. Well, you know, I think Aaron, I, I can't remember when he wrote that paper, but the Fed also was one of the primary regulators of several of the banks that failed. And so yes. he was talking about, you know, whether it's appropriate that the Fed, which has so many important jobs, like, you know, the, the Fed's like too big to be failing, right? Interest rate policy. And they write a bunch of rules and they're an examiner and they're a regulator <laughs> of the payment system and they're an operator of the payment system. And that the Fed has this supervision role and like oversees really big banks and some of those banks failed <laughs> this year. And that's just something that's really interesting too, is that I don't think like there's, you know, people wearing too many hats at the Fed, but it's almost like it has too many mandates and it's trying to be all of the things. And I think that that can be really confusing. And also, I think it's, you know, we've talked a little about the master accounts, right? The Fed runs this system, runs the payment system that you need mm -hmm. the master account for. But also, they get to decide who gets a master account. And then it's not like a clear process. The list that they put out leaves a lot to be yeah. desired because the number one way to become to get a master account is to be a bank. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, but are there any not banks? And they're like, maybe. <laughs> like, a couple. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But and there are there are non banks. And so why did those get master accounts and under what like what rationale? And so it it is really right. interesting because it's like kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like the Supreme Court, right? Like no one can check the Fed. The Fed's kind of the final yeah. say on a lot of stuff, including, you know, monetary yeah. policy, including regulation, <laughs> including right. the master accounts and the payment system. And so like, to your point, I mean, there's a nice thing about division of labor within the regulatory sort of apparatus, right? Because I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I've been spending a lot of time on, like, things that the CFPB is working on right now, right? So, like, open banking, as an example. And, like, open banking, I just read all the comment letters that were submitted on the, the proposed all rule 11, for 1033. 000. Yeah, I read every one of the 11,000, Kia. Nice. Don't question me on that. Uh, <laughs> I promise I did. Like, don't poke at that claim at all. And no, in the ones that I actually did read, one of the things that came up, particularly from like the bank perspective, was the banks referenced their prudential regulators a lot, right? And they were like, hey, yes. if we had this rule the way it's written right now, this would bring us into conflict with things that the FDIC or the OCC or the Fed want us to do or require us to do. Mm -hmm. You know, we would like you guys to like work this out. And I get that that's annoying, right, to banks to have like two different sets of regulators, one that's focused on consumer protection, one that's focused on prudential matters. And like sometimes their rules or their uh, guidance comes into conflict. But at the same time, I also think it's really healthy for our regulatory system to have those conflicting objectives that have to kind of get worked out over yeah. time. I mean, imagine the alternate where all consumer protection regulation falls underneath the same prudential regulators, right? I think that might be how it is in other countries, though, right? Like I think it probably is. No, I, I think it is. But like, I would worry about like that from a consumer protection perspective, because I think that would make it so much easier 
for using open banking as an example for banks to go, let's just say like the OCC was in charge of open banking and all sort of consumer protection that fell under the OCC. I don't know that I want the OCC having to weigh by itself the argument for its prudential regulations yeah. and the requirements as around those like third party risk management and the consumer benefits of open banking. Because when the banks go, hey, you know, we'd love to do this, but it would make us a lot more you know, difficult to manage third party risk and might put the financial system at jeopardy. Like that would be an argument that would be much more persuasive to the OCC under that sort of hypothetical than it is to the CFPB, who's like, look, I get it. And we'll try to sort of work with the OCC and we'll try to like make these regulatory requirements harmonize with each other. But at the end of the day, we're not going to let you sort of get away with just saying this is bad because of this other thing. So I don't know. I think there is a benefit to jobs being separated by different agencies and a little bit of interagency conflict. And the Fed is the example of when you don't have that. Like they just do a bunch of different stuff (laughs) and you're never quite sure why they're doing what they're doing. And, you know, even we talked about on um, one of our previous podcasts last year, we talked about the change to the way that the Durban Amendment is being applied to interchange caps, right? And like what that that might get adjusted to. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, okay, so the Fed is doing this thing, which again, does not make any sense. And is probably more the function of like legal things that are happening behind the scenes. But like, again, if I put on my conspiracy hat, Like, what does the Fed making debit cards even less profitable potentially incentivize? Does it incentivize banks to adopt Fed now faster? Like, I don't think that is a real thing. That's not a conspiracy theory I'm throwing out there. I don't believe that. But like, you can start to draw lines between things in a way that isn't probably real and that you shouldn't be able to, but you can because it's all under one big roof. I don't know. It's weird. You know, I haven't mentioned this because I keep trying to just cut myself off, but several times in the outline today, because I think we have similar, we have thematic items. I have mentioned that this feels like a premise related to the book Fragile by Design, which um, is yes. going to be in your fintech book club. And that looks at how the different countries have set up their banking systems and their regulatory systems to prioritize different things at the time. And often these are not based in financial safety and soundness. They are based on geographic concerns. They are based on population concerns. They're based on like who should get to control the money in a country. And, you know, sometimes they're based on does our country have like a lot of natural resources. And so I sometimes I think about that, that like, you know, whether they can compare and contrast the United States and Canada's banking policy or banking landscape. Canada has never had a banking crisis, not during the financial crisis, not during the Great Recession. And they are dominated by very large banks. And as we learned, Canadians love their banks. I found this in my anecdotal research and you pissed everyone off on Twitter. So I did. And that's really different than the United States, even though there aren't really like big, it doesn't feel like there are really big distinctions between an American person and a Canadian person. And so sometimes I like to think that like the things are the way they are. Because, like, there is a value that Congress, there is a value that the regulators are in are enacting that is not related ostensibly to whatever their public mandate is. And I think in yeah. this situation, they're like value the Fed, judgments, really. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The mm-hmm. Fed has a lot of different like p- policy mandates that it has been given about the kind of world that it should help create. And so then yeah. they have to do things that are really confusing sometimes, like be the operator 
of this of the payment system that they regulate and the regulator yep. of that payment system did not force the operator to upgrade the payment system for years <laughs> and everyone right. and then the regulator told the operator of the payment system that not everyone can get a master account and the operator was like okay that's fine and then the policymaker raised interest rates by 5% and then it created problems for the examiners in that same building right like this is these are just a bunch of different policies that are being enacted and that then everyone kind of has to deal with and then banks have to deal with. So I just, I kind of keep coming back to like that they are not really about, these are just different values that, you know, Congress and regulators have said that they wanted. And so then they have to enact them no matter how much they conflict with each other. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's just, it sets us up for a very, very strange world. And I think your point about, you know, regulators and why they decide to do things the way that they do is there is that value judgment component to it, right? I mean, part of it is your mandate. Part of it is what you're required to do. There are restrictions, right? Like, you know, they're not allowed to charge for this. They are required to recoup their costs so the taxpayers don't bear the cost of this. Like, there are statutory requirements, but within all of that gray zone, they're just decisions that get made on, like, what kind of world we want to create. And, um, That can feel just incredibly, I mean, it's on the one hand, it's very culturally specific. And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you studied the history and and that Fragile by Design book, by the way, I've started reading it is amazing. It does trace the history. I have. It's it's, it's dry. It's not like um, John Grisham (laughs) or anything, but it really is pretty interesting because it goes into the history of sort of regulatory design of banking systems in different countries and kind of compares and contrasts them. And it is so fascinating because it's just like there are these choices that get made about we're going to prioritize X because that's what we do here. They have nothing to do with financial like safety and soundness, right? No, and profitability. no. They are just completely divorced from that. Yeah. Or it's like or, or both, you know, path A and path B they could go down are both pretty equal in terms of like what the impact on general safety and soundness would be. Sure. But they pick A because in America we do this or they pick B because in Canada we do this. And then what happens is. And this is, I think, the thing that's really interesting. It all kind of becomes precedent that builds on each other, like you were saying earlier. And so instead of reexamining old assumptions, uh, like, for example, I I would love to reexamine the assumption of the Federal Reserve shouldn't play a direct role in interacting with consumers. Like, I personally think there should be like a FedNow wallet or something. Yeah, public uh, bank. Teasing our next topic a little bit. Yeah, like, I'd be kind of cool with that as like a competitor to banks and fintech companies. But we made the decision 150 years ago or whatever it was that we're not going to do that. And every update we make to the system is building on that choice that exactly. you know, some white dude a long time ago made. So it, it is really weird how that happens. And I mentioned digital wallets. Kia, I have a question for you that I'd like to, to segue to, if that's okay. Yes. Okay. This is my uh, question uh, under the category of possibly unanswerable because I don't know that there is a good answer, but I think it's worth poking at. Kia, should banks offer digital wallets? Alex, I don't know, but I think they want (laughs) to offer digital wallets. But I think they want, this is my outside consumer who kind of doesn't really understand any of these moves, but let's talk about them. I think they want to offer digital wallets because other companies offer digital wallets. And so this is a thing that they're doing because someone else did it first. And then they realized like they were a natural option to offer the wallet and are trying to get back into this. But frankly, I don't understand 
like to me, this seems completely solved and addressed. And it is so interesting to me that digital wallets is this new battleground for both regulators and tech companies and big banks. And I don't think consumers like me care about digital wallets. So every time I read a digital wallet thing, I'm a little confused because it has not been answered in that like article or whatever of like, how does this help consumers? And how is this not just going to be one more app or one more thing or one more place their information is stored? So why should banks offer digital wallets? Well, so I think the question you asked a little bit ago is the exact right one, which is like, isn't this already a solved problem? And what it exactly reminds me of is it reminds me of P2P payments a lot, right? Yeah. Which is to say there's this thing, right? There's this analog thing that exists. So in the case of P2P payments, it was cash, right? Like, hey, Kia, we went out to lunch. You owe me, you know, 15 bucks and you give me 15 bucks out of your wallet. Done deal. And then banks sort of just assumed that the way that consumers were doing this activity, this P2P payments activity, would continue on the way that it always has been forever and missed an underlying shift in technology that opened up an opportunity to create a different version of that product, which is P2P payments apps. So then a whole bunch of non-bank companies come in and go, ooh, this would be cool. Like, what if you didn't have to give Kia cash? What if I could just Venmo her? the balance for lunch. And a whole ecosystem is born out of that. And what banks then realize seeing that is they go, well, we should have been the ones to do that. And (laughs) again, this kind of is like my whole like, what's good for a bank is not always good for a consumer thing. Like, yeah, I get that you're upset by that. But then banks were like, well, we have to get into P2P. And I can tell you this from firsthand experience talking to a lot of bank executives about P2P over the years, the level to which they were haunted by Venmo for years was startling. Like you'd ask a bank about fintech stuff, you'd ask a bank executive or CEO, and the first thing they would say would be like, well, my kids, or in a lot of cases, my grandkids, they use Venmo, so we have to do that. Yeah, it really bothered them. Yeah, like it was the one thing that broke into their consciousness was like, Ven- like I, we have to do something about Venmo. And you're like, yeah. you'd ask them questions like, well, are you really losing any like payments volume because of Venmo or like... Are, is this meaningfully changing like the nature of the relationships you have with your customers? Or like, what's like the business case for wanting to compete with Venmo? They're like, we just have to do it. And you're like, okay. And so then EWS comes out with Zelle and you know makes an acquisition, launches Zelle. And again, I can tell you from firsthand experience, the sales process for Zelle was like, not not based on business logic at all. It was really like, you will sign up for Zelle. And you're like, well, okay, do we need it? They're like, oh, you need it. And it's like, is it going to be expensive or is it cheap? They're like, oh, it's going to be really expensive. And you're like, okay, can I charge my customers money for it? They're like, no, you can't charge your customers any money for it. And you're like, okay, is the money going to move on like kind of traditional ACA trails? They're like, no, the money's going to move in real time. You're like, okay, but won't that create a big fraud problem? They're like, oh, the fraud problem is massive. And you're like, okay, well, I guess we got to do it. You know, and it's like, yeah, the whole conversation old. made no sense. And yet everybody was just like, well, we have to do it. We have to get on board with it. Right. And so Zelle becomes this like thing, not because it made sense or because it necessarily filled a huge gap for consumers. Now, I will say the real-time thing, Zelle has kind of carved out a lane for itself over time, kind of by brute force, particularly around larger transactions. So people pay their rent or things that are more time-sensitive with yeah. Zelle. So I mean, yeah. Zelle, Zelle, just by nature of like the network effect that banks had, it kind of forced its way in to right. the party. 
But it wasn't like people were looking around going like, this is a massively unsolved problem. Like, that's not that's not what was happening. And so to your point, I think digital wallets are exactly the same, where yeah. banks were like, okay, so the analog solution here is people just have actual like leather wallets that they keep with them. And that has a lot of their payment instruments in it. It has identity cards. It has rewards. It has a bunch of different things. Like, cool, you know, wallets are solved. Like, we don't need to worry about that. And then companies like PayPal and Apple and Google, you know, all appear. I guess Twitter is maybe getting into payments. Like, these companies appear and they're like, well, what if there was a digital wallet? And you're like, okay. And, you know, they present a vision of what a digital wallet can look like. And it's convenient in some ways, right? I I don't know if you're a big user of like Apple Pay or anything, but there are parts about it that are nice and kind of convenient. And they can even now like digitize a driver's license in certain states and put it in there. And I feel like we're playing this whole P2P thing out again, yeah. where banks are looking at this and going like, well, shit, we should have been the ones to do a digital wallet. Like, why did they get to do a digital wallet? We should do a digital wallet. And they're, again, ignoring the question of, well, does, is anyone asking for another digital wallet? Like, are we kind of set on digital wallets? And they're like, no, 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 you need to have a digital wallet. And guess what's coming next from our friends at EWS? Pays. Yeah. And so, like, again, we're, we're playing the same pattern out again. And I, I'm not, you know, disparaging pays. I don't know too much about it. Maybe it's going to be amazing. But it does very much feel like banks sort of shouldering their way into an already well-solved problem area. It's funny. I don't, I use Apple Pay when I'm buying stuff on my phone, which right. I don't know Me how too. pays would work to replace that particular transaction. And I do use yes, Amazon or I do PayPal for stuff online sometimes. And I don't sure, really, sure. like, I don't even understand. And I understand, like, I use PayPal and then I have a bunch of my cards in PayPal. So that technically constitutes a digital wallet and then paypal somehow debits or charges my card but then sends the money and so i get credit for the purchase and that like and i feel like all my needs are met (laughs) from this transaction and i also have many credit cards and so i don't know how (laughs) pays would work having products from different financial institutions and that's what i kind of like about paypal and Apple is that they're not just my one bank that I have most of my cards with. And I like Zelle. I think Zelle should have existed before Venmo. But again, I the thing about P2P and the thing about digital wallets is that sometimes I think banks don't really care about what your problems are. They give you products, but they don't like help you do the thing with the product. And so these tech companies have created the technology that makes that product, the card, the bank account, more useful to me and more applicable in all these different situations. And so now I've changed my financial habits, but I don't really know why I would need another one of those and why one that comes from a bank is going to be so much better than one that doesn't come from a bank. The other thing too, is I know that, you know, the CFPB is very interested in this. And I also don't really know kind of what, what the CFPB is concerned about with the big tech companies. Because I guess like I'm not concerned about the big tech companies having my having this digital wallet. And so I don't know what the CFPB is concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, right? I mean, I think that I guess the concern, if I was to sort of play this out, would be like back in the day prior to 2014, 2015, I want to say the early days of PayPal, they would do payment steering, right? Which was, hey, you're going to check out you have a credit card loaded into PayPal 
you should load your bank account information into PayPal. And if you pay directly by debiting your bank account, that's better. You should do that instead of cards. And so there was always this tension between PayPal and Visa and MasterCard, which in that instance were representing the interests of issuers on their network, basically saying like the problem with digital wallets is at any time they can decide to steer the consumer because they're at the front of the experience, they've solved that last mile problem to your point. Yeah, yeah, That has yeah. given them the right to steer consumer behavior in a way that might be bad economically for the interests of uh, banks, or I guess from a regulatory perspective, would allow them to exercise undue influence or sort of monopolistic control over that interaction. And I'm, I'm using that framing specifically because when it comes from the CFPB like big tech is just one giant sort of antitrust puzzle yeah, for Rohit yeah. Chopra to to solve. Right. And so I think that like the concerns are antitrust, the concerns are being able to steer people away from things. But, you know, I mean, again, kind of goes to your point about banks ignoring this problem. You have advanced no interest over time in thinking holistically about what's the best thing to build for me as a consumer a and B, kind of going to your point about pays, and, and again, I don't know exactly how it's going to work. Maybe right. the user experience is going to be amazing. But like, I, what I can tell you is the Apple Pay experience is actually amazing, right? Because I use it the same way you do, which is e-commerce transactions on my phone. Arguably, it's <laughs> stupid. Yeah, it's like stupid <laughs> easy because it's like you go and you push. You like, do you want to pay with Apple Pay? You push the button on there. You just use the biometrics to log in. By the way, using the biometrics, zero of my personal information is transmitted anywhere. It all just stays on the phone, which is encrypted. And not only does it fill in my payments information, and I can use my Capital One card and still get rewards, so that doesn't change anything. And it also fills in all of my shipping information. So it's like literally amazing. And it works perfectly. And whether it's that or it's the Amazon buy button, which is getting integrated into non-Amazon websites or it's PayPal or it's whatever, like they have earned the right to play that role in my life as a consumer. And in the case of Apple, like they had to sell me this handset, this little Mm supercomputer in my pocket to earn the right to be able to do this other thing. And so in a sense, is it monopolistic? Yeah. But they also, from my perspective, like I'm very happy with them doing yeah. it. Like for the most part, I'm pretty happy living in an Apple ecosystem as long as they don't abuse the privilege there. Now, if they came along and said, hey, we know you love using Apple Pay. We know it's super convenient. You can't load non-Apple credit cards into Apple Pay anymore. You have to just use the Apple credit stop card. Stop using it tomorrow. Stop. It right, would be fine. Exactly. Arguably and, better for yeah, my and to the, <laughs> not No, I mean, it really would be, right? No, no, exactly. So, So like to me... There are lines that they might cross. Going back to your Delta thing, like you could push it too far and then people mm-hmm. will freak out or regulators will get involved from like a UDAP perspective, apparently. But <laughs> until big tech like crosses that line yeah. and tries to abuse the position that it has, like it earned its position. Yeah. And I don't know that I'm super concerned about like, wow, they need a lot more competition there. So I don't know, maybe that's not the answer that the CFPB would give. But like, as yeah. I think about it as a consumer, I kind of keep coming back to that. I will say that, Again, because I'm like a credit card chaos monkey, I actually change my <laughs> I change my payments a lot. Like I keep a spreadsheet of what card my insurance is billed on, what card my gym is billed on, <laughs> what card blue apron. This is such a is. this is such a YNAB sort of way and, of thinking. I love it. But if if Pays wants to solve my very specific problem that sometimes I need to switch my cards to hit different spending challenges, 
And I'll be that beta tester. I will boldly, like, uh-huh. I'll boldly do it because it's not so much time that I'm not going to do it. But it happens sure, as sure. a frequency by which I am ashamed to sometimes admit the amount of, like, tracking of what charges on what card and that sometimes, like, one card has to take all the charges. Sometimes one card is going to be for gems this month. So then, or for the quarter, totally. right? So you know, if you have mm-hmm. those quarterly cards. And so there is like kind of an application. My big blue bank could do this for me. It could be like, hey, Kia, we mm-hmm. saw that you activated your quarterly categories. Do you want us to change? We noticed out of all the transactions, do you have a gym membership? Do you want us to go ahead and change mm-hmm. that to help you get that? Do you want us to change like your Lyft and Uber now that you have a card that gets X, per- X amount of points? Now, obviously the bank doesn't want me to earn as many points as humanly possible. So that's why the yeah. bank doesn't do it. And that's why I do it. But that is a use yeah. that a, that's a specific digital wallet could serve for me. And I would change my behavior so fast. So that's my one use case. I doubt it's going to be materialized. And <laughs> that would make it really different from Apple Pay in the way that like Apple Pay made is like a very special experience and is like does does it all for you. And it is so fast and easy. And so, yeah, that would, I don't think banks can like replicate that experience, but, you know, go ahead and take my suggestion. It's free and I'll be your beta tester. I love it. All right. Well, um, folks at uh, EWS or any of the big banks that are <laughs> listening who are thinking about uh, wallet strategies, Kia just gave you a great idea. Uh, I love that, actually. So um, we'll leave that one there. Before we wrap up, Kia, just in the last couple of minutes, as always, we like to give you an opportunity to just blow off a little steam. So what's bugging you today? Okay, I'm going to try to be quick, but... Um, if any of my past experiences I showed you, I will not be quick about this because I'm actually really, <laughs> this makes me so, so mad. So my rant okay. today is what are examiners looking at when they do an exam? Mm-hmm. What are they actually looking for? What is a yellow flag and what's a red flag? And <laughs> I ask this not because I think they're, because I think they do a really, really important job. And I think that yes. they have had some, and we, and you know, we don't write articles about all the planes that don't have the door plug fallout. We only write articles about the plane that has the door plug fallout. So when yes. these failures in examination and supervision happen, they're really bad. And they also seem weirdly preventable or obvious in retrospect. And I say that because there was a story that came out last year that the nation's largest credit union, Navy Federal, rejected more than half of its Black conventional mortgage applicants. Navy Fed mm-hmm. lends to uh, military service members and veterans. They approved more than 75% of white borrowers who applied for a conventional home mortgage purchase in 2022. And then they only, but less than 50% of Black borrowers who applied for the same type of loan were approved. How did, was it possible that this story got written? Well, it was using public data that comes from the CFPB. This did not come from a consent order or a CRA rating or downgrade or whatever. It came because a journalist downloaded a data set and ran some numbers. And this is not the first type, time this, story ha- this type of story has been written because there's a decent amount of data based on who gets mortgages. And so like we've, we've, I've seen headlines about Wells Fargo rejecting half of its Black applicants in mortgage refinancing. I think there was a Revealed News did a story about redlining, and they were looking at banks that, you know, based on their approvals, 
and the, the race of those approvals. And these are using public data. And so, you know, my my question is like, are examiners running the same analysis that journalists are running with this data? Does this data, does it get used in examinations and that like someone at the regulator is an analyst is, is doing the data and is like, hey, that, that, it's interesting that there's some, no matter what policy and process they're following, it's generating this result. And is this result mm-hmm. something that an examiner could probably ask about and then say, that's so interesting, your models are producing this result. And what do, you know, what, if anything, do regulators do with the Humda data or the CFPB data set that reporters are using? And this, you know, obviously has an applicability to the banking crisis in the spring. When I was reading the material law certain one, okay, so one of the things about the banking crisis in the spring is it was like, you could see it coming. And all you had to do was hope right. that like, there was nothing bad that was going to happen to set off a liquidity run, which is the first thing we talked about today. But I noticed in the FDIC's material loss review on First Republic, and First Republic was like, by all accounts, a pretty good bank, um, kind of the victim of its circumstances, totally, like totally 100% a deposit run. And I noticed this line that said, you know, with respect to the examination team's focus, there is a risk that the dedicated examination team can become so focused on completing the continuous examination process steps such as supervisory plans, quarterly ongoing monitoring, and target reviews, that they may not sufficiently observe how the risk landscape has changed. For example, some FDIC officials suggested that perhaps the dedicated team was too focused on First Republic's models and model validation efforts and did not provide sufficient attention to the bank's practices and actual interest rate risk positions. And so I am so fascinated slash confused about what, how examiners are kind of spending their time and what they're actually concerned about versus what they really should have been concerned about. Because what are you looking Mm -hmm. at in an exam if not the the actual interest rate position rather than maybe like the model that is producing this? How are we missing the actual results of like any bet? or any decision, any credit decision, and we're kind of missing the totality of those results versus the like math that we use to get there and then the process by which we checked our math, right? And I, I'm a soccer referee, and I have sometimes said that soccer referees are like bank examiners in part because like our main concern is safety, yes. you know, the safety of the game, players, and then also like we have to enforce rules we didn't write, and we are the em- embodiment of the rules. And it's also really hard to do this. It's not really for anyone, everyone. You have to kind of manage a lot of personalities. But one thing I think about a lot when I referee soccer, I have to do like a series of tasks, including like I have to check that all the players who are going to enter the game today are on the roster, right? (laughs) Like because you can have unrostered players and then the insurance doesn't work, whatever. I have to like make sure they're properly equipped. I have to make sure the field has corner flags and that the goals are anchored. These are some kind of low level process based tasks. But my actual job is that I need to work really, really hard to get into position so that I can, that when I can anticipate a foul happening and I have to have a look at that contact before the contact occurs, because when the contact occurs, I have to be able to ascertain and evaluate the severity of the contact 
based on where did it happen? Where is the ball? You know, is it the front leg? Is it the trail leg? And so then I can determine both if there is a foul and a misconduct and who committed it. I have to be aware that everyone on the field is also looking at the same thing and will have an opinion about whether I have seen it and correctly ascertained it or not. And I have to be aware that there's like a public nature to my action. So I can't be looking in those moments to say whether someone has an earring or whether someone's shirt is tucked in, which is technically part of my job. In those moments, I really, really have to look at the outcome of the actions and the direct steps that led to that outcome. And that's like, if I'm not doing that, then the game's not safe. If I'm not in position and making the big calls, especially to say like, this was an unsafe way to play. This is a yellow card. Like the game's less safe. Even if I can say, yeah, that was everything except, you know, the studs being up on the slide tackle was legal, right? Like, But I have to be (laughs) able to say, I have to be able to say the studs being up on the slide tackle made the tackle like a a yellow card. And I just, I think to myself that like, you don't get safe games by not calling fouls, right? Like the safe game, you get the safe, you enforce the safety of the match by like being able to, you know, manage contact and the outcomes mm-hmm. of that contact in a way that inf- like reinforces the safety. And so I'm looking at this and I'm just thinking, how is examination conducted that word focus more on process, but the process by which something happens? And we seem less focused on the outcomes of those processes. And also that like, yeah, I'm sorry, sometimes the math can look good and the outcome can, the outcome, again, the outcome could also be a good outcome in 2021 and in 2022, but it is a less acceptable yeah. outcome in 2023. So I just get so confused and worked up when I read these stories because I don't even know how they happen that a journalist could write this story and a regulator would be like, thumbs up, looks good. You know what I mean? So I, totally, I don't know. Totally. I don't know if that's something that you've been thinking about or like what you think when you read these stories that it's just these are just things that happen in the world and like nothing to be done. You know, well, I mean, I think the point you made is a really good one, right? Which is like process versus outcomes seems to be sort of at the core of this, right? And I don't know if you've ever had a job at a company where one of the value propositions or one of the like company values is <clears throat> act like an owner, right? That's a very popular like mission statementy like employee goal that we have is everyone who works here we want them to act like an owner, which means that in doing their day to day jobs, we don't want them to just check the box. We don't want them to just do what they're asked. We want them to think about the overall company, what's best for the company, and always have that lens in everything that they're doing such that when they're on the ground and they're seeing something that doesn't make sense, they're seeing that in the broader context of the business. And even if doing this thing might constitute doing their job in a narrow sense, they might not, or they might question it, or they might bring it to the attention of someone else because they're trying to act like an owner overall. That's like a value that I think uh, exists a lot increasingly in people's jobs. And, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned before on the podcast, I briefly, briefly had a career as a basketball referee, not nearly to the great uh, accomplishment that you've achieved in soccer. Uh, I, I couldn't hack it. But one of the things I briefly observed was that there was kind of a similar thing in refereeing where there's a distinction between calling everything and calling a good game. Right. Yeah. And so like to give yes. you like one example in, in, in basketball, one of the things you're not supposed to do is if there's like a foul on one end of the floor, 
and then the team gets a fast break and is going the other way. And the coach of the team that thought there was a foul that maybe didn't get called starts screaming and yelling or, you know, tells you to go do something that they shouldn't tell you to go do. You can give them a technical. You should give them a technical foul, but But, you shouldn't blow your whistle until after the play on the other end is over. Because Uh if you do that, you are disadvantaging the team that got a fast break going the other way. And so it's not so much about the calls being right or wrong. Maybe you missed a foul call on the other end, but the overall intent is preserve the flow of the game and make sure your, your responsibility as a referee ultimately is a safe game with good flow that allows for kind of the spirit of whatever you're trying to accomplish to kind of manifest itself. And sometimes that means calling everything really tightly. Sometimes it means calling everything tightly in the first quarter and then sort of loosening up to let people get more competitive over the course of a game, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. But like there's a feel thing associated with your ultimate responsibility, which is call a good game, not, hey, you have to get every one of your calls 100% right. And I feel like- You know, that's that like outcome versus process thing. And so when I read things like the First Republic report that you were quoting, where they were talking about the team getting too focused on the steps and not looking at the bigger risk picture, it's like, if you're an examiner for First Republic, your job is to evaluate the risks facing First Republic holistically. So your job is to see the whole forest. And while there are steps and processes and scorecards and things you have to do on a micro level to do that, and those are important, those can't get in the way of you looking at the whole picture and going, you know, they're telling me everything is good. They're telling me that their models are, you know, within the range that they're supposed to be, blah, blah, blah. But these are concerns like if I was the CEO of First Republic, this is how I want an examiner thinking, if I was the CEO of this bank, these are things I would be concerned about. And I want to make sure we address those concerns, even if some of those fall a little outside of the steps we're supposed to be looking at. Yeah. Also, and I'm so sorry, I really should have said that all everything I've said today is my opinion and not the opinion of my employer or anyone else. <laughs> this extra, extra, extra applies to the rant. But I do think that there is, you know, in refereeing, we talk about managing the game and yeah, managing yeah. points of the game. Obviously, examiners are not managers of the bank, but I still think that there is a, place for them to say like interest rate risk is on that Campbell's report, right? Liquidity risk is on that Campbell's report. And so it like kind of doesn't, you know, if you think their math checks, the process by which they check their math also checks, but you're still saying like, I think this could be, you know, your liquidity profile and your interest rate risk profile is such that you are more vulnerable or less vulnerable to this type of environment. Like that's something you should communicate even if it like nothing bad happens, right? I would rather say, you know, hey, like I guess as a referee, hey, you playing like this, you're aggressive man to man. That could probably get you more yellow cards than other other teams. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying that like, again, that approach is yours and you can't be necessarily surprised by outcomes versus maybe a different team with a different style of play. I don't tell teams how to manage their I don't tell how to I don't tell coaches how to coach. I don't tell players. I have players like when they come up to me and say, Hey Ross, that wasn't a foul. I look at them and say, Okay, do it again then. Like if if you don't think it's yeah. a foul, then don't then like don't let me who thinks who called it change your mind, right? Like, but Right, that, yeah. Don't let me change the way I, you're playing, but I'm gonna yeah, call no, the game the like, way I see I'm, it, right? I, yeah. Like I'm just calling it and it's not personal. I've got to manage kind of like I've got these other things to manage versus like, you know, just adjudicating contact. But I think that I've been really curious about the effectiveness of examination. And, you know, I kind of, you know, I want regulators 
to make a bigger deal about liquidity risk and interest rate risk before we have this. And I was, you know, I was really surprised and disappointed, you know, to kind of think about what was I reading in these reports about what was and wasn't happening and where their attention was. Because, you know, if if the bank's not looking, that's, you know, I guess one thing prerogative, but like the examiners are looking (laughs) like, you know, like what are, what are you, you know, so yeah, that was the whole job. No, I, I, yeah, I hope that, you know, I think that's we've a good really one. solved this one. I hope that we've solved the, the liquidity interest rate risk. Although I will say that I don't think most banks are still like really hedged. <laughs> like, you know, there's <laughs> a paper that found that like six, less than 10% of assets in the banking industry are hedged. And, you know, First Republic's interest rate risk uh, strategy included making loans at higher rates. So then you'd have a diversity of loans paying at off at different times with different interest rates. And I was like, I don't know if I think that that should count as an interest rate risk strategy. I think you should probably have some triggers that, you know, if our EVE is telling us we have this amount of vulnerability to rates rising at 2%, we have an automatic hedge policy that goes into effect. Or if we, you know, if we want to offer these types of, you know, we can only offer this type of credit in this type of environment. And maybe we don't offer interest only $5 million loans in you know like a zero percent environment right like i don't know what they should have done but i just kind of wish that they had been a little bit more automatic and that regulators are probably like communicating that that's an option <laughs> so, so. <laughs> well i mean i what i hear you saying is there's the potential perhaps for interesting stories for us to talk about in the future so kia I'm sure with there that will I will let you go. We will get, um, I'm sure, a fascinating 2024 that we'll be talking about all year. But it was great to catch up with you in the new year. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.